Big Fluff. Most murders are crimes of necessity rather than desire, but the great ones, Dahmer, Gacy, Bundy, they did it because it excited them. Don't you... I got nothing in common with them, with you. Don't you talk to me. They were insane. Now you're talking semantics. What if I told you insane was working 50 hours a week in some office for 50 years, at the end of which they tell you to piss off, ending up in some retirement village, hoping to die before suffering the indignity of trying to make it to the toilet on time? Wouldn't you consider that to be insane? Murdering 30 people, semantics or not, is insane. One girl? I drove through three states wearing her head as a hat. It's my daughter's birthday today. So please feel free not to share everything with me. Put the bunny back in the box. Hey everybody, I'm Joel Murphy. And I'm Andy McIntyre. And this is Silver Linings Playback, the podcast where we watch maligned movies and we find their silver lining. <clears throat> and we have a wonderful episode here continuing with Nick Cage month. Uh, we are watching the uh, inimitable Nicolas Cage in the inimitable movie Con Air. And we have as a special guest, uh, the one and only Aaron Hankin. Thank you for joining us, Aaron. Andy. Joel, it's a pleasure. This is a, what a great excuse to watch this movie. God, I mean, 20 years later, it came out in the mid nineties. Uh, I love what you guys are doing. I love that you dedicate not that this is like, it seems like it's becoming an annual tradition, Nicholas Cage month. Uh, and it's, uh, it's nice to be part of the canon. Uh, I can't wait <laughs> to talk about this movie. No. Yeah. It's, it's so great to have you on. And yeah, I, I think this movie is so interesting because I think you could argue that this is the start of like, I don't think we have a Nick Cage month, if not for, uh, and Aaron, you and I were talking about this before we started, the, the month that this came out in 1997, you got this movie and then Face Off. And I think they set Nicolas Cage down a path to be the Nicolas Cage that we are discussing <laughs> like on this show. <laughs> he was at a crossroads yeah. at that point in his career and he made a very definite decision that involved like a weight bench and hanging out with a lot of tough guys <laughs> and a lot of hair extensions. <laughs> the, man, he, we're not skipping ahead to to the silver linings just yet, but that hair is glorious. Like it is just as immaculate as I remember when it's It is a mane. It is yeah. not even hair. It is a mane. It is fully on display. <laughs> yeah, he's well shampooed for being a convict of however many years he was in prison. 7, Seven I believe. Yeah. <laughs> That's seven years of prison shower that only uh, it's the only way to get that look. Well, I don't They seem pretty lax at this federal prison on which you could send in. I mean, he had pictures like he had lots of paraphernalia. He was getting those snowballs, you know, sent in. Uh, maybe his wife was sending him some conditioner. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you know, he had a very particular. <laughs> that could have been the gift. Um, I'll tell you what my favorite thing about Con Air is, even though we're not to the silver linings yet is this is a movie that's best watched eight minutes at a time over the course of seven years. <laughs> like it just comes up on cable. You watch like seven or eight minutes of it. Then you go about the rest of your day. And over the course of, you know, about every seven years, you get to watch a whole, a whole course of this movie. And it doesn't really matter where in the movie that eight minutes is. No. You can have sort of a postmodern <laughs> viewing of it in segments that are rather disjointed and you can get, you can get the big picture pretty quickly. Cause this movie is always on TV somewhere. Yes, it's on right now. If you if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, man, I should rewatch Con Air. Just put your TV on. Put it on. Try just, TNT first. It's probably there. If not, maybe TBS, TBS is yeah. a second get, second bet. <laughs> yeah. USA is a last resort, but it's there somewhere. Just if you could get it like on scan, like the radio, you'll find it. It'll eventually all scanning dials lead to Con Air. Well, yeah, that's what we recommend. We recommend you watch a chunk and then you write a letter to a young girl about the chunk that you just watched and wait for her to write back. And then, you know, you just can correspond that way for seven years. And then you've seen the movie. Right. Gentlemen, I have to, you get to let me go on a little digression here and just look, some of your listeners may have been with you from the beginning. Some may be just tuning in. What is this Silver Linings Playback podcast all about? Who are these guys, Joel and Andy? For those listeners 
let me just have you sort of talk about what, how'd you get into this? How, how did this become the pot? Are you both like, um, frustrated movie critics? Did you go to <laughs> film school? Are you just like amateur, you know, movie junkies? That, well, thank you for asking, first of all. And I know you're humble, but you're you you have your following that that's what you're implying. The, the, when the Hankin squad discovers that you're on a new podcast, they're going to they're going to flock to this. But I appreciate that. I think uh, it's called the Hankin Horde. The Hankin Horde. <laughs> Horde. We'll take that. We'll um, take that. But yeah, so uh, for I will only speak for myself uh, and I, I will let Andy answer as well. But uh, for me, I actually did. I used to review movies when I lived in Baltimore. I was on the press list uh, for Hobo Trash Can. I still do it when I have time now in L.A. But yeah, like I I would go to a lot of screenings and I think like one you like I'm, I feel like I'm always somewhere in the middle of I I really love movies. That's why I did it. I still kept that passion. I'm. I'm very defensive of movies and of, um, you know, bad movies, I guess, in general, too. And you could see that cynicism sometimes, like those older crew that had been at a million screenings and they had been it and they kind of had gotten jaded. And I think I just always was like, I don't want to be that person. I'm seeing movies for free on a big screen and I get to write about them. And I always want to appreciate that. And I so I think it was just trying to keep that positive positivity. And I know we launched the site last year. We launched the podcast last year. And I think everyone last year was feeling probably not the best that we've done. And so I think Andy and I really wanted to be as positive, bring something nice into the world. Hopefully. Did you guys blackmailing me? (laughs) I mean, how do you guys know each other? Do you, are you a long time buddies? Did you go, have you gone to movies together for a long time or. Uh, we have been friends for almost 10 years at this point. Wow. Yeah. I guess pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we met uh, doing improvisational comedy with the Baltimore right. Improv Group in Baltimore, Maryland, and uh, traveled the country performing and doing improv. And then uh, Joel got stars in his eyes and uh, <laughs> like a country bumpkin headed off to L.A. to get discovered. And uh, I stayed back behind in the Baltimore area. And then, uh, yeah, like I said, he's holding me hostage and uh, forcing me to do this. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's well. It's a it's a good excuse, right, to get together. You know, no, absolutely. So it's been a great and, way to keep to stay in touch and to keep connecting over something we're both definitely really passionate about. And well, also, um, well, the other thing too that we should be clear about, in case you have any connections or anyone else does, we're also doing this in hopes that we Andy and I also inevitably end up pitching a lot of movie concepts. And we're really hoping that someone cuts a check because there's been go back through the archives. There has been some truly great. There's some gold. Yeah, there's some gold in action movies. You're uh, building a portfolio here. Hopefully. What we're really hoping yeah. is that one of the movies we pitch gets made and then we can sue them for <laughs> IP rights. Yeah, we're just that's establishing good. a paper trail. That's... <laughs> well, I like that idea. Yeah. If you so, just talk about every conceivable idea, eventually someone will do something similar. So what's your game plan when you have an episode? Do you, do you, do you attempt to like synopsize the movie and then sort of go through it chronologically and pick out certain points that you want to, or is it, what's your, how do you approach as a producer? You know, okay, I got an episode. How am I going to do this? I think it depends on the movie. Um, usually we start by looking at the movie as a whole and then figuring out precisely why it has been maligned either through lack of finding an audience or critics disliking it or whatever it might be. Uh, and then once we've, a fit like sufficiently sussed that out we go and look for what the silver linings are and what what is the joy that can be found in this movie that maybe you may have overlooked because someone else you heard said it was bad or you think it's dumb and maybe you can look at it with a new lens and say hey you know what nicholas cage is good i like the spirit you guys bring to this and i did read a lot of the reviews of con you know i try and do my homework if i'm going to be on a podcast so sure. I, number one, I watched the movie, I promise. Oh, good. <laughs> number two, I looked at some reviews. And like you're saying, Joel, there are those critics who take a movie like this as an opportunity to sort of explain all the reasons why you shouldn't appreciate a movie like this. When I, I literally like overheard them before movies started, like like you could hear them writing the review sometimes mm-hmm. before the credit, like before the first frame even rolled where they're kind of working on. 
They're mater- and you you can tell those reviews where they're like they're trying to be really clever and you know like Con Air doesn't get off the ground like they're just working on their like airplane right. puns for the car ride home. <laughs> I mean, it is sort of the cinematic version of like a twenty piece extra crispy bucket of chicken from KFC, right? You well, know, it's not going to be a four star meal, but you you know what? Sometimes you want a twenty piece chicken bucket from KFC. And at the end, you do second guess yourself a little bit. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And I think that's the thing is it's like, I think you, we all know if, if I were to look at anyone listening or or either of you and say, do you want to watch a movie where Nicolas Cage has long flowing hair, does a ridiculous accent and has to save people on an airplane full of convicts that, you know, end up like sieging the, you know, seizing the plane and, and trying to fly to Mexico. Do you want to watch that movie? You know if you do or not. And if the answer is in an enthusiastic yes, then I think Con Air delivers that on that <laughs> that enthusiasm. And then some. Yeah. If so, you say no, no, I understand. I understand when, if you're like, no, thank you. But when you guys do a podcast, do you assume that everybody's listening to the podcast has, has seen the movie? That's a good question. I've you know, I should probably think about that more. <laughs> I, uh, I think, I think it depends on the ubiquity of the movie a little bit, yeah. Um, because most of these movies have been out for a long time or haven't had a good audience. But we don't worry too much about spoiler warnings, because right. uh, if you're listening to a podcast looking for the good in a movie, you know that the movie's going to get spoiled, I assume. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to some level. And uh, there have been a couple of times where we said, listen, if you're watching, if you're listening to our podcast and you have not watched this movie, Go watch it before you come back and listen. Other yeah. times mm-hmm. we just say, stick around, listen, you'll have fun. So, um, okay. So perhaps a little bit of uh, deference to some spoiler alerts. Yes. But if people hasn't, haven't seen the movie, let me just speak to you for a minute, listeners, <laughs> and tell you on behalf of Joel and Andy that they're speaking about the movie Con Air, Nicolas Cage. You imagine this is, this is a movie that begins, this, the uh, credits roll, and you meet Cameron Poe is his name. The protagonist of this film, he's, as you've heard, a buff dude with, well, actually, at the beginning of the movie, he's like a straight-laced uh, military decorated war uh, army ranger yeah. hero, but an army ranger, yeah. perhaps returning from a not popular war, and he's being reunited with the love of his life, uh, who's uh, pregnant, hanging out in a bar. <laughs> You know, I didn't even right. take the time do. to, yeah, think about the weight of that. Yeah, what is she, yeah, well, it seems like maybe she works there, but yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, that yeah. could be it. Yeah. And um, he is immediately getting picked on by, like, some local yokels at the pool table who decide that it's a good idea of anyone in the bar to to pick an argument with that they're going to pick a freshly returned army ranger who's wearing his full like dress, dress uniform yeah, yeah dress yeah. dress blues with the chest full of you know awards and accommodations yeah. everything clearly just got back like off the bus and, and they these immediately guys immediately tear into him about you know oh your girlfriend needs a real man or whatever they're saying to him like just but whatever it takes, like whatever movie script stuff you could put in to antagonize a, a guy who's just returned from the military. And he does on several times does try to walk away. He clearly we get the impression he's a hothead, but he he's try he's counting to 10. His yep. his girl is clearly like, come on, let's just go. And he's trying to be calm, but they chase him into the parking lot. Right. To continue they're not, they, to harass they're not, him. They're not uh, satisfied that they've got him to leave the bar. Yeah, but they, yeah, which gets and to then they get what's coming to him, right? Yeah, yeah, which gets, so then he so said they three on one they attack him in the parking lot. He kills one of them accidentally with a single blow. And this I do want to get to this because this to me is my biggest thing with this movie is he has the worst lawyer in the entire world. Like, I what? wanted to say that like this movie could have been ten minutes long. <laughs> he just like pled self defense. Yeah, right? like what? and he may have served some penalty or something for manslaughter something like that but probably not seven years in prison no you got a bar full of witnesses who see these guys antagonizing him anyone and he's a goddamn war hero <laughs> yeah he's a war hero like it is the most textbook self-defense but he gets seven to ten years in federal prison right terrible lawyer like, yeah <laughs> he handles and- his prison sentence very well though i think mm-hmm. 
Yes. I mean, what's remarkable to me, my favorite scene from the prison. If I, tell me if I'm skipping ahead too far. Oh no, you're I don't good. Want to mess up your cadence of. <laughs> you're, you're good. But he's he's in. He, listeners, at one point, Nicholas K. Uh, he's living he, every. He's living and breathing for this love letter correspondence with his sweetheart, and you know, and you hear him narrating the letters in his syrupy Alabama drawl, which has got to be. Now I heard that he actually went to Alabama to learn the accent, but what he learned down there is. <laughs> debatable anyway it is like it's identifiable as someone trying to do a southern accent anyway he's at one point he's literally like quietly reading a love letter from his sweetheart in the middle of a prison riot mm-hmm. like things are on fire guards are being shanked around him and he, nothing can like divert his attention from his sweet beloved's words in his cell that's dedication you don't want him you want a man like that that's love. Well, see, that's the thing, too, is like he might be contained in those four walls, but he's free up here. He's free in his mind because Always. he's still connected to his wife and his daughter. And that's why he won't let himself, you know, be be fully incarcerated. He's got one foot out the door. He he uses his time in prison. Well, he does this like very impressive uh, self-improvement regimen of bodybuilding and Just learning Spanish body for whatever reason yes. he's learning Spanish. Didn't that seem like that was going to pay off? Like I know. <laughs> like when did he need Spanish in the movie? I don't recall. Yeah. But... It definitely felt like they were threading something when he's like doing Spanish <laughs> tapes, but he does not speak Spanish throughout the rest of the movie. I guess it was just to indicate that he's, you know, he's a, he has a lifelong love of learning just like any good public radio listener. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and he, he, he sort of keeps his even keel throughout his sentence. And then finally his release date comes, right? And, and that's so, a pretty momentous moment for him. Yeah. And he's, he's, he's simultaneously being released at the same time that a bunch of other like super max prisoners are being transported to super super max i don't know like they're they're being transferred out of yeah and it's federal prison so they're being collected from all across the country to be brought to this super prison and they decide to bring him aboard the plane with all the super he is officially at this point a a free man Mm -hmm. yep but they're just like i'm sorry the best we can do for you is to put you on this super max prison airplane with the world's most hardened criminals. Which is point two. That this, your next yeah, which is the second point that this movie could have been over. was just, <laughs> he, he takes a bus, you know? Right. <laughs> but then, this is the point when you really, as a viewer, you begin to realize, oh, this is an ensemble cast movie. Mm-hmm. Because you meet the whole cast of all the other uh, tough guys who are going to be on this airplane. Which I, look, again, not skipping too far ahead to, like, Silver Linings, but I, I'm a sucker for a well-edited, fast-paced montage of this is this criminal. These are all the terrible... Like, you're watching the guy, like, walk towards us while someone is giving their backstory of all of the awful things they've done and they're kind of staring down the guards or whatever. Works for me completely as as a way to introduce the rest of the plane, for sure. It was great. It was like it was the beginning of a WrestleMania Mm -hmm. or something where you're meeting all the contestants. Yeah, because really, with a movie, you want to you want to tell, not show. Like, that's the important. <laughs> but no, I, I'm also a for that. like I loved it in Guardians of the Galaxy when they did like the character rundown. You know, I think it works in a lot of movies as just a quick way to get everything out. You know, this is this guy. He's the worst criminal. All Cyrus the virus. Da da da. And um, the fact that it's mostly narrated by either John Cusack or Calmini is, I think, pretty excellent too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need to uh, we need to acknowledge that like the what is he a DEA? No, he's um he's like a prison. He's like the federal prison guy who's in charge of this. A whole U.S. Operation. Marshal, maybe U.S. Marshal is John Cusack, mm-hmm. and he's uh, designed from high fidelity as the uh, federal yeah, agent. A suit that does not fit him at all. No, I don't it's know like why David that stood Byrne out to me in this movie. Suit. <laughs> that was a poorly tailored suit, and John Cusack is usually known for having very well tailored wardrobes in his movies and better roles well <laughs> well that was also it was very unclear what his because he clearly he was like the architect of this 
plane or plan or prison or whatever. He's the guy in charge of the operation. But we never, as much as we get a rundown of everyone else, we never got a rundown of like, is John Cusack, is he a badass? Like, is he tough? He seems to drive a station wagon. And I think that was the biggest thing is there's a point where he steals the DEA agent's car and he's speeding to save the day. But I had that watching of like, what are you going to do, though? Like, you have not established a world where I should be thinking like, uh oh, Cusack's showing up at the airport. Like, yeah, he seemed like a pencil pusher. Yes. Well, Someone who was really good at his job for him as well. <laughs> you know, yeah. he was look, our hero, Cameron Poe, Nicolas Cage is on a hero's journey. Mm-hmm. And I think our agent, John Cusack, was on a bit of a hero's journey as well. Because he shows up as a little bit of a, as you say, Andy, a pencil pusher, pusher, smartest guy in the room, bigger vocabulary than all the rest of the jarhead agents. But he kind of comes into his own and becomes a hero in his own right over the movie. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I don't want to get ahead. Maybe you guys want to talk about like the. See, we were talking about this cast of characters. Do we want to talk about some of this supporting cast and who ends up on this plane? I mean, it's a who's who of people that started movies in the 90s. You got Cyrus the Virus, played by the one and only John Malkovich. You've got Johnny 23, played by Danny Trejo, uh, who makes excellent donuts. Totally unrelated to this. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. If you're if you're in L.A. and you get a chance to go to Trejo's Donuts or Tacos, both delicious, like for sure. Uh, yes. That's cool trivia. I did not know that. <laughs> um, it's got uh, Dave Chappelle as Pinball. That was wild. I had no, I was saying to Joel, I had no recollection that he was in this movie. I didn't, yeah, he's I'm sure done I didn't like four movies. This is one of them. <laughs> yes. Uh, did you mention Ving Rhames? I don't know if you mentioned. I didn't mention uh, Ving yeah, Rhames. Yeah, Ving Rhames as Diamond Dog, which amused me because I've been watching Ted Lasso. So they yes, have the Diamond, the Diamond Dogs. Into, yeah. Uh, but yeah. And uh, did we mention Buscemi? Like, yeah. well, no, we didn't. Steve okay. Buscemi as yeah. uh, Garland Green, I think the character's name is. Yes. Sort yeah. of the Hannibal Lecter-esque like, serial killer character. Right. He and, showed and up a with couple the of neo-Nazi guys and a few also, other. Also, shout out to MC Ganey, who might not be a household oh, yeah, name. Swamp but, Thing. But yeah, he plays Swamp Thing, the pilot. I, I'm a huge fan of MC Ganey. If you watch Lost... He was one of the others in Lost, like big, big fan of his. But yeah, it's it's definitely got this like surprisingly stacked uh, cast. I also feel like we should mention, since we're kind of teeing it up, that one thing that I never thought about this before, but watching it now seemed very apparent to me is I feel like in the pitch meeting, there was a big thing, obviously, because Die Hard was such a huge movie that it was like Die Hard on a like speed was pitched as Die Hard on a bus or whatever. I did like thinking about it now, looking back, it was like there's a very Die Hard on a plane pitch to this. If you really think about there's a guy, he's got a wife and a kid that he's trying to get back to. There's you know, he's locked in a location. He's got the guy on the outside who believes in him and then the other guy on the outside who's trigger happy. And they even literally kind of end it with money raining out of the sky a lot like the uh the bonds are raining out of the sky there's a lot of like when i started thinking about wow. it through the lens of die hard of like i feel like they they kind of lean pretty heavily into the die hard structure a guy is thrown from a high place with a message written on him yeah i mean i think if you wow, start you guys are really astute viewers <laughs> i never would have even realized any of that yeah, I think it was it was just hitting me because, yeah, the Cusack uh, Nicholas Cage dynamic is very John McClane Al Pow in terms of like, mm-hmm. I we got a guy on the inside and I'm the only one who is communicating with him, who can trust him kind of thing. So, like, yeah, I, I think it's there is definitely that seemed like a heavy influence. Well, and you've got a lead who's uh, who's uh, a, a line shirt keeps getting dirtier and dirtier and sweatier and sweatier throughout. That's true. Right? Yeah. Were these movies made by the same person? No. Bruckheimer? No. no, no. Bruckheimer, I think, just decided he really liked Die Hard and kept yeah. trying to <laughs> capture that lightning in well, a bottle. Well, that's what's interesting, too, is we didn't talk about that in terms of like we talked about how this was the beginning of Nick Cage. This was like the Bruckheimer movie. This was his studio's first big movie when mm-hmm. he established his own, you know, Bru- that logo, which that like, I don't know if you guys had that, but when that Bruckheimer logo popped up like that, that's the first time that that rolled on a movie. This was the launch of him as his own brand i think and i think a very clear and smart branding of like this is what i'm gonna be doing can i ask you guys a question yes Mm -hmm. the so listeners the plane takes off 
and it's got all these people caged up, handcuffed up, everybody. And then pretty much there's like also a montage of everybody then like secretly like spitting out the little hairpin that's going to unlock them. And they all now this is my question. These guys, they all came presumably from various other like supermax prisons. And now they're getting put together to get put sent to some super supermax prison. How is it that this random group of sociopaths could be so well coordinated? They're like the A team <laughs> when they take over this plane. But have they ever met each other before? How did they figure how did they make this plan? I think it was hijacked this plane. I think we have to assume that Cyrus the virus, because we do see that he has all this stuff hidden in his cell. He has a code system of like a painting with the eyes cut out. So with, I, I'm guessing yeah, with Da Vinci's Last Supper with the eyes cut out. If you put it over certain books, it like decodes a message. Mm, yeah. Right, so I feel right. like he must have been sending. This is my assumption that he sent letters to the other prisons that were encoded. But and now the question of how they knew for the code. But yeah, like I think. You know, he's he's lived a life. He's he's encountered a lot of people and he yeah, he clearly has a very coordinated plan. It makes sense to the people who take over the plane at first could have all talked because they're all from the same prison. But yeah, how they knew we're going to pick up these guys at this prison, the MC Ganey swamp thing. He can fly the plane. So we're going to kick off the pilot. Yeah, there was definitely a high level of coordination happening. You would have thought there would have been like a guard in on it or something just to connect the dots. Right, right. I mean, there's room. This is fertile ground for a Con Air prequel. <laughs> Since you guys are pitching movie ideas. I mean, Con Air Origins, now that they're all 30 years older. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we could cast someone to play a young Malkovich and, and see what happens. These guys, they take over the plane. They, you well, know, they do they it because David Chappelle lights a dude on fire. Yes, yeah. right. That's the distraction. One of his fellow prisoners he just covers him with lighter fluid and lights him on fire. But it seemed like it was that was very calculated, too, because Chappelle had swallowed the lighter fluid and something to ignite it. And then I guess the implication is made his breath bad so that they wouldn't check down his throat like his breath was so bad when the guard was checking him when he got on the plane that, you know, he, didn't he let him to go. He was yeah. keeping huh. anything in his mouth. Right. Oh, boy, you guys are close viewers. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but when, um, so the, oh, we should also mention there's like, uh, there's a sort of like a, a, a damsel in distress slash kind of tough gal in her own right. Who's an agent who's on the plane the whole time. Who's constantly being threatened to be raped by Danny Trejo, but also is sort of like then kind of helping our protagonist Cameron Poe while he's trying to figure out a way to maintain some sort of order. We well, yeah, can't remember what her name is. But. Yeah, that's what I was, I was trying to find her name, but there's both her, the prison guard. And then there's also the other, the other sweet prisoner who is having a diabetic emergency. Yeah, Michael T. Williamson. It's insulin. Yeah. Right. Uh, but yeah, you have him and then, Oh, it's Sally Bishop is the guard. Uh, who's Rachel, uh, Tocotin? I'm going to, yeah, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. But yeah, there's the two of them, which is the other important thing. Yeah, because Aaron, you kind of hinted at the hero's journey of this all. And like the, well, the arc is, again, we, we've established, we established with those letters early on, all, all Nick Cage wants in this world is to, to finally meet his daughter, to finally be out of prison. And then he really gets presented with this, you can leave. There's the plane lands, we're switching over people, we need you to pretend to be one of these guys that was killed. Well, we need you to be you. <laughs> well, yeah, essentially we have a head count of how many people are supposed to get off this plane. You can be one of them. And he stays to protect those other two because he knows that like, because he's the ranger, he's an army ranger. He can't, it's, it's in his nature to not walk away from things, which is how he ended up in prison. That's his leave no man behind. Yeah. Yeah. He yep. can't, he can't do it. So, yeah. So he, he stays on the plane to protect so both of them. The plane makes a, some kind of a, a layover stop where they, they let some guys off and they put some other guys on. And this is where there's some hijinks that sort of stretch credulity a little bit where there seems to be no... Because up until that point... I think we can all agree 100% <laughs> plausible. Logic. Yeah, everything. Just, yeah. 
but as now, tight as a plane's hull. <laughs> when they land, um, these guys they pull off their switcheroo just by putting on the the costumes of the dead guards yes. and being like, "Hello, we're the guards of this plane. Here's some guys with bags on their heads, and now we'll be on our way." What's well, also fortunate that it's during a windstorm, I guess. Yeah, like, this... that was working to their favor. <laughs> yes, right. so they could wear masks and not be uh, second guessed. Yeah. Well, they take off and then they're headed to uh, Las Vegas. No, they the that's learn they field up. airfield in sort of like middle of nowhere. That's Nevada. right. There's another stop. Does the plane crash there or they know? No, no. So they, no, that's where they're supposed to meet some kind of drug kingpin who is right, a cartel them. boss that's going to get them to Mexico or wherever yes. their ultimate destination is. Well, because they also right. you, you can't forget the other important thing that happens at their first stop, which is Dave Chappelle's job is one swamp thing rips out the like tracking of the plane. Then Dave Chappelle is going to hide it in another plane. So they're following the, which was also unclear if they even knew where that, I wondered that, did they know where that plane was going? Was that like, it seemed like he just randomly picked a plane, but it seemed pretty fortunate that it was going in the complete opposite direction of them. Right. Yeah. It was a sightseeing plane. Yes. So there was a nice comic moment where the, you know, the local yokel pilot and his tourists are up there and they're now all surrounded by all these scrambled jets. Yes, and, and the, that are helicopters. On the and, yeah, right. Which and that's what the aforementioned John Cusack being the only person who knows what's up, showing up alone to the. So he gets there first to this dirt airfield, and then uh, he races the airplane in a Corvette. Yes, that he steals from the the hothead from guy. Calmini. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, so yeah, he gets there first. Then he doesn't seem to have much of a plan. They have a layover. They spend a lot of time implying that Steve Buscemi is going to murder a child. And then that yeah. doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. The only that other time. One of the most interesting holders. little moments of the movie, I thought. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a fascinating scene, but it, it really is a scene that seems to exist because he has just that clip that we played at the beginning. He has just explained to our hero that he murdered a girl and like wore her skull across three states right. or whatever. And then he he meets up with a little girl that is just hanging out at an abandoned airfield. Yeah, right. In a no explanation for why she's there, why the old man hiding under the truck is there. Yes, it's very right. middle of nowhere, but they're both there. Maybe that's her grandfather and he's supposed to be watching her. I don't know. But yes, they they have a tea party and he he takes a doll from her. But he gets yeah, back sort, on the plane. Sort of reminiscent of uh, the famous scene from the 1931 Frankenstein. Kind of had that vibe to it, but he didn't end up yes. killing her. Yes. But I think it was definitely trying to evoke that sort of dynamic. Mm -hmm. It was a redemption moment for Steve Buscemi's character. Who, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they clearly wanted us to like, like, it is unequivocal that he's killed over 100 people. And, but yet the movie clearly has a lot of sympathy for him because he is... Uh, jumping a little bit ahead, he's the only prisoner that escapes at the end. Right. Right. Yeah. And he he really delivers, you played it at the beginning of the episode, just the most sort of substantive, uh, you know, 30 seconds of dialogue in the movie in terms of like social commentary. Uh, yeah. Which I mean, is, he's, yeah, I, I think I that's a good point, too, of like, because I like that. I mean, he's great. And that scene is really interesting. I, I do feel like this movie had those moments where like it it seemed like it wanted to say something or at least it like felt like it thought about almost saying something or someone a producer was like we should try to make because you have ving rames character where it's very clear that he's like trying to lead a liberation but it's always just things that are sort of alluded to very vaguely without much substance or really any commentary it just seemed like someone was like we're gonna make this deeper by having <laughs> these like touches of bigger picture, you know, social There's a franchise opportunity that was missed here, I think. Yeah. <laughs> you could have a whole Con Air universe. Oh. Which each one of these sort of different prisoners, you know, you'd oh. learn more about their backstory and their motivation and what brought them to that moment. Oh my God, that 100%. Yeah, they would definitely try to do an MCU thing now where each... Oh yeah, you'd, you'd see a movie of Ving Rhames being the political prisoner, like leading the civil rights movement you know, the sort of black nationalist movement, for lack of a better term, you would see Dave Chappelle lighting fires. You'd have a Hannibal Lecter, like Hannibal, the TV series-esque show starring 
Steve Buscemi. Steve Buscemi, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you would definitely like that. I think Aaron, that would answer your question in that every post credit thing would have Cyrus the virus, like sending he'd the next the piece Jackson of it all. Yeah, he'd be sending the next piece to okay, and when the time comes, this is what you're gonna do. Like he's recruiting all of them to the you know the villain Avengers or whatever the like you know. Speaking of the end credits. Did I imagine this or during the end credits, was there like these little cuts of like them kind of having maybe it was it was borderline having fun on set, maybe or like they were all kind of like doing these kind of like jocular smiles like they were, you know, they they were victory lap during the end credits, but they're all like horrible characters in the movie. Yeah, no, they were definitely veering towards gag reel territory at the end. Like. Yeah, it, it felt a lot like the opening to Family Matters, where they're like doing a task and they turn and kind of smile. Right. I do right. love that they gave us one more because that was like the final wind blown Nicolas Cage shot was was his his Family Matters title card. Yeah, and still not enough. <laughs> no, I mean I I can't say enough things about that hair. <laughs> like it's it's it should have had its own credit. Like I think starring Nick Cage and this hairpiece, honestly. <laughs> And, and it was still kind of full on top in the mid nineties. It wasn't quite, but it, well, it was a little bit, it was I starting to retreat, but not, it looks, not, it wasn't in full on, uh, male pattern baldness yet. Right. But he was, I mean, this is a man at his like peak of his existence as a physical specimen. Oh, he, he was, was pumping iron between takes clearly on this movie, uh, to be as, you know, ripped as he was. No, he was, he was both shredded and yoked. He was like <laughs> probably the, Best physical. Yeah, I think that probably was the best physical shape he's been in in a movie. I mean, he was doing handstand push-ups, and those are not easy. Right. And it looked like he was was actually doing it. It looked like he was doing them. I wonder, too, because this was, I think, after The Rock, right? The Rock came first. So he probably started training for that and then just, I think, stayed. This was just, yeah. Yeah, he just stayed in shape and continued to... To, and then it's funny because, like we said, right after that was Face Off, but Face Off, I don't really remember him being particularly. They, at least they weren't showing well, off. Like because well, he had to kind of match physiques with Travolta, and <laughs> that's true. Yeah, you know that's that's uh you know Travolta's. I guess not since probably the seventies was he in like <laughs> jacked, chiseled shape. Well, plus Face Off was a lot more about like two-handed pistol fights yes it was a lot of diving through the air firing two guns at once yeah yeah so these guys they eventually how is it that the plane they have to make an emergency landing well so this this is our murkiest sequence that i i tried my best to to follow the logic of what was happening so as we said like john cusack shows up he's trying to stop them eventually everyone else the cavalry figures out that he is right and they all show up there's a giant shootout. The the guy that was supposed to give them a new plane double crosses them. So then they have to get back in their old plane. That's what happened. Yeah, right. it's it. This is definitely the like most muddled sequence. I felt like I had really trouble following what what was going on when they landed in the desert. There, it seemed like there because there was also too much going on because that's when. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cameron Post trying to find the needle for the guy having the diabetic coma. Like he's yeah. got his own thing. This is also when a little girl might be killed by a serial killer. Like all of that's happening while there's explosions and a shootout and an old man hiding under a truck. Right. Yeah, that was like they're really. It was kind of like the uh, sort of like drugged out desert scene almost when they were all having their little heart of darkness kind of individual. Uh, morality yeah. plays or something. Yeah. And they and they had to dig the plane. They literally had to dig the plane like out of the ground. It had basically half been buried in the ground because it kind of crash landed. Because well, that's, yeah, they ended up in the ditch because they were going to run into another plane that was taking mm-hmm. off from at the same time. Uh, yeah, there was just a lot of, cause it, I was also, yeah, th- this scene is, there's like, it's kind of confusing the way, because when Cusack gets there, it seemed to imply that there was supposed to be someone in the tower that had been murdered, but then by yeah. who, I guess that was the drug dealers, but then they weren't staying in the tower to communicate. Yeah. Like, yeah, I just, the exact timeline of what is happening in that sequence is kind of a mess. 
there was clearly not a uh, proper pre-flight check before the plane takes off from that desert to wherever it's going next. When are they being fired at? And they also, that's when they, they get the ass kicker car like hooked because one of the last things our hero does is tries to tie the plane to a pillar and then mm. the that hook ends up hooking into the the sports the car yeah the corvette so the plane then so they have another do they even have a plan after that or i think they're, they're just improvising yeah, I think they're improvising because all of their plans have fallen apart. They they got caught on switching the locator. They their their trade off plane that was going to take them to Mexico is gone. So yeah, I'm not even sure what they're doing. They're just escaping, I think. And then Nick Cage seizes control of the cockpit and crash lands them in Vegas. Right. But up to that point, I have to say this: the movie was really a like. Like Nick Nick Cage's character Cameron Poe is is uh, basically delivering a clinic in like uh, masterful diplomatic relations because look he doesn't want to be on this plane uh, or he doesn't want to be part of this like escaping to Mexico he's already been let out of prison right but he's on this plane with all these um, crazy hell bent for Mexico uh convicts and he has to kind of play it off like okay yeah whatever you because he doesn't want to let them know that he's actually been freed and he's just like hitching a ride to get home what else so the, he has to kind of play with them like like okay i'm with your crazy plan and well they kind of like him too yeah and the that's the clip at the beginning is uh that the serial killer is the only one who figures out that he he straight up like kills a guy in hand-to-hand combat on the plane because that guy breaks into his personal effects and figures out that he's lying to everybody and that he's supposed to be released on Bastille Day, which is the day that it is. That's also just a side note. I wanted to get that in there somewhere that all of that was in the IMDb trivia. And I feel that they wanted it noted because they make a big point about the date. His daughter's birthday is Bastille Day. So now you have that information. It was also a famous prison break that led to a revolution. Yeah. Much like this movie about a prison break led to a revolution in mindless action cinema by led by Jerry (laughs) Bruckheimer. It did. So, so, uh, but Uh, yeah, so he bring it full circle. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, yeah. If you want to get into the, you know, again, I think this movie wants to be about deeper things. And I think that's some of what they're trying to explore is like, what is the idea of a criminal? And he doesn't view himself as one of them, but also he's going to have to kill people to keep his secret and he's going to have to lie. And so what, what is the line between him and them? And I think it's asking that question, but I don't know that it has a satisfying answer. Yeah. I think that's one of the places where this movie missteps in that it can't decide if it wants to be mindless and fun or try to say something, but still keep some of the mindless fun. And it, it it's a difficult tightrope to walk. And I, I would say that the movie probably doesn't succeed in, in walking it. When I, and I think if people have been listeners to this show, I think you already know that Andy and my instinct tends to lean towards be mindless and fun. Yes, or, go all the way. Like, Swing like, hard. Yeah, you're, I don't want the philosophical examination of the prison system, Con Air. I want the very bad men keeping Nick Cage from the stuffed bunny that he wants to give to his daughter, Con Air, for sure. Well, you definitely get a heavy dose of the latter. Yes, in for Con sure. Air. I mean, it's, you know. Um, this movie, how do you think it's aged in terms of, like, its quotient of cancelable material <laughs> coming out of the mouths of the variety of characters in this film. I, you know, that, I think that is a good question because I think anytime that we watch 90s stuff, I always cringe, but as far as 90s stuff go, it, it's better than a lot of the movies that I think we've watched surprisingly, yeah. you know, in terms of like things that I expected to, to really be, you know, just not have aged well. Like, cause one character that we haven't talked about, uh, is, and I, again, I'm trying to pull up the name of this character, but there's, there's a character that is just, uh, female that's like on the plane that isn't that I, I, you really in a nineties movie think that there's going to be some kind of upsetting <laughs> reference to the, but it's just a prisoner, uh, who is there, who has a clear want of just like, who's most likely assigned male at birth, but definitely identifies as female. Yeah, and it's like there isn't any 
inherent like any of the commentary or things that you think people might say in a 90s movie aren't really brought up it's just everyone's using the correct pronouns it's all handled surprisingly yeah, she's just kind of there yeah like yeah. I, that actually sincerely surprised me yeah same i think probably yeah, it just the, kind of gave it gave the crew a little bit of like an animal house vibe yes yeah i think the worst that they handle is the Ving Rhames character in that they're trying to make him into some kind of political prisoner, but they they don't really earn they it. They also want him to be a villain. Yeah, and so they don't Who's really arguably crusading for noble causes, but but yeah, so he he doesn't like that character didn't seem great, and I mean, Danny Trejo is pretty cartoonishly one-dimensional i i think this movie like walks up to a lot of edges that i would have maybe thought it was going to go over and then walks it back like with uh the little girl being okay or like with the fact mm -hmm. that like the the woman that is the prison guard that gets handcuffed she's she's saved there's a, there's also like a vaguely religious you know hint in this movie where the guy in the diabetic coma says that he doesn't believe in God anymore. And then Nicholas Cage tells him, I'm going to show you that God is real. And it's like that felt out right. of nowhere, but like almost like that they like I don't this movie is more wholesome than I would have thought in when it really like when push comes to shove. I think it it doesn't hmm. choose yeah. the darker, you know, path that a 90s movie might have. It actually kind of has kid gloves at some crucial yeah, it moments. It doesn't allow itself to fall into the what was socially acceptable in the nineties tropes that it very easily could have. Yeah. So I think that helps it, but I mean, yeah, there, there's definitely some things that haven't aged super well. Yeah. yeah. What a lot of it comes out of the mouth of Dave Chappelle too. Honestly, Dave Chappelle's, which I, I saw that he uh, improvised a lot of his yeah. dialogue, but yeah, Dave Chappelle's dialogue probably has aged the worst in the movie. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So, do we? Uh... So let's let's officially lock down what the silver lining of this movie is. Even though I think okay. we've been kind of doing it. It's Nick Cage's hair. Through. It's Nick Nicholas Cage's, Cage's hair. hair. That's yeah. number one. First, <laughs> I mean, let's, let's be first on the record. And last, Nick yeah. Cage's I hair. I would call that the golden lining. Yes. No. Yeah, it is the chestnut brown lining of this movie. <laughs> it's glorious. And if you have listened to this whole show and you've never seen Con Air, I would almost wager that you have still seen a GIF of him just kind of shaking his head and that hair just just <laughs> like he's in a like he's tawny Katane is just yeah, flowing just by luxurious mane <laughs> yeah you've probably seen that so so that's fantastic like for sure just the look the hair i even love the accent it's not a recognizable so southern accent but it's a choice yeah it, it is it is consistent mhm mm bad yes <laughs> but but i like i feel like he still his pronunciation is pretty consistent, regardless of if it's an accent based in real life. He commits to it. Yeah, like he drops his R's in the same places. He elides his vowels, um, you know, monophthongizing certain other vowels, you know, turning two sound vowels into one sound vowels. Like he's pretty consistent with that. It's just no one talks like that. No. Also, or everything maybe one person talks like that, and that's the dude he met. And he's like, no, no, I met this guy. <laughs> if you guys talk to this guy, yeah, you he's actually doing a pitch perfect impression. Well, that's the case with Forrest Gump, oddly enough, is that because Forrest Gump doesn't really sound like anybody, but uh the kid that played young Forrest Gump, that was how he talked. And Tom Hanks was just doing an aged up version of it. And wow. Yeah. Which also uh, so, one of the one of the stars of Forrest Gump was in this movie, just to say. <laughs> Michael T. Williamson making. Yeah. yeah. So there's the connection. Yeah. And it's it has characters from Alabama. Doing unrecognizable accents. Um, but yeah, I think. You know, he he commits. He's all in on his character, as Nick Cage always is. Well, and again, as, as we kind of set it up, this is this was the crossroads. This was this was Nicolas Cage's road to Damascus moment. He <laughs> he was walking home one day. And he had a vision of a career filled with ridiculous action movies. And he knew that that was the path he was going to spend the rest of his life on. And he he did it. He did this. He did face off. And then we're doing Nick Cage month. So you I right. think on that alone, the audacity of the choice of doing this movie. 
is is something that I think is a silver lining for sure. I, you know, <clears throat> I want to focus on the 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 final reunion of Poe Cameron with his long lost love of his life and now eight year seven year old daughter. Can I ask you one question real quick? Uh, what yeah. song is playing while that climactic moment happens? Right. There's some song from this movie that is... Uh, it was a, a uh, huge radio hit. Top of the charts. How do I live yeah, Leanne Rhymes. you? Leanne Rhymes, How Do I, I Live. Yeah. A young Leanne Rhymes did the song, right. Mm -hmm. One yeah, of the many yeah. Diane Warren penned yeah. uh, <laughs> action movie soundtrack songs. That, that was, was nominated for both an Oscar and a Razzie, winning <laughs> yes. neither. Yes. But yeah, so we, so we hit we hit. How do I live without you? He finally has the disgusting bunny that he at the last moment fetches out of a sewer to finally <laughs> give to his daughter. Who also they've brought his daughter and his wife to this unsecured crime scene where prisoners are still on the loose to reunite her with him. But yes, right. That with that the is the moment. Lights all around them, and yeah. he's filthy. He's mm -hmm. he's like covered with blood and Dirt sweat and everything. And he's been and, shot. Yeah. And, he's, <laughs> and this is how he. This is the daddy that this little girl meets for the first time. Mm -hmm. And um, she's a little nervous about him at first, but he gives her the bunny, and then the mom kind of scolds her a little bit, like your daddy gave you a bunny. What do you say? Because she doesn't want it. Because she because it's right, so it's dirty. That, yeah, and he's terrifying. <laughs> but then she sort of, like, within a matter of maybe eight seconds, is just like, okay, this is my daddy. And then they have a like a group hug at the end. And I'm just thinking, like, you know, if you can, if you can win your daughter's affection with, with nothing but a dirty stuffed animal and just the pure goodness radiating out of your heart after you've managed to, you know, Save survive an ordeal like that. Like there's hope for all of us. Yeah. I mean, this is classic. Yeah. This is, this is all the hero's journey. This is all Joseph Campbell. Like he, what does he want? He wants to return home to his family. He's gone on the road of trials. He's, he's embraced both hero and criminal, both sides living within him. And now he, he's going to get this moment where he finally gets to meet the daughter that he didn't get to meet because he has a terrible lawyer who has never heard of self-defense, who got him sent away for seven years. And I think, Joel, you really make a good point about the idea that, that there were so many points where this movie could have taken way darker turns. Mm -hmm. But at the end, it really sort of maintains its status as, as like, as you said, a wholesome movie. It's like a feel-good, you know, wow. action movie that has all the violence that you might, you know, sort of be in pursuit of when you go see an action movie, but leaves you feeling with that sort of elevated spirit where, you know, everything turned out like the critical moments, like the girl wasn't killed by the serial killer who met her in an abandoned swimming pool. And, uh, you know, um, the chained up uh, female prison guard wasn't raped by the guy on the airplane. And, and all those decisions that could have taken it in all these different directions didn't happen. And that, uh, you know, all the action is, you know, except for the bad guy gets his head smashed by a, a random sort of mnemonic hammer that's in the middle of Las Vegas. Oh, yeah, well, we you, did. I mean, you, we've all been to Vegas. We know that you can't walk more than two blocks without seeing a random pneumatic hammer just <laughs> pounding into the street. Yeah, I mean, they say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but like just so you everyone knows if you've never been there, just the the idea, the chances of being Rube Goldberg killed in Vegas are incredibly high. So astronomical. Yeah, so be very careful uh, with that for sure. But yeah, the, something else too, Aaron, that you kind of reminded me of too, is they make an interesting choice with the the main villain with Cyrus that every time our hero stops someone from doing something terrible, he kind of like kind of tilts his head and is like, wait, what's happening? And then it always sides with, with Poe. Like every time when, 
when Danny Trejo's going to assault the woman, it's like, no, he's right. I hate that. Or like when there's another scene where a guy's going to execute the guards and he's saying like, we need them as hostages because he's trying to keep them alive. And then he shows up again and is like, yes, like, let's keep them like nobody yeah. dies. No good people. Yeah. But no good people it's- die. And he always takes the nicer uh, path. Like he always sides with. With Poe over everyone else. This is a movie about leadership and what leadership (laughs) means, I think, is what you're saying. Because we're, you know, it seems like, you know, the big bad guy, Cyrus the Virus, is the leader that everybody kowtows to at the beginning of this operation. But the real leader ends up being Cameron Poe. Yes, it's it's leading from the back versus leading from the front. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's a dichotomy of leadership styles. (laughs) That's it. That's what it was really. (laughs) This movie is really just a a discourse on how to be a better boss. You can lead by example and uh, lead from the back a la Cameron Poe, or you can be the guy, you know, uh, cracking the whip from behind and I think what we're saying people on what we're saying is if you're planning your next corporate retreat, show Con Air (laughs) and then talk about (laughs) the sort of, you know, interpersonal communication skills on hand and who who effectively communicated. I think Steve Buscemi was really effective. Like he he let us know what he wanted, how he viewed things, you know, Uh, maybe there's a question of communicating effectively. Like I need my insulin. Like you're telling one guy that, but maybe, you know, it it seems like Cyrus, the virus wasn't a bad guy. Maybe he would have gotten you that needle. You know, you gotta, you gotta be your regional manager, more of a Cyrus, the virus (laughs) or a Cameron Poe. So I think what we're saying is that, uh, if your business needs some professional development, that Joel, Aaron and I are here to help with the Con Air business program. Look, and as we always say, you got to put the bunny in the box, but you got to think outside it. <laughs> All right, There's a well, business opportunity here. If I'm, oh, yeah. We're not just Believe pitching it. movies. We're pitching. Yeah. Look, Andy and I should movie business seminars. Andy and I just want money. If that's not clear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not by now, listeners. Pay us. All right. But I, unless anybody has anything else that they, they specifically want to spotlight, I do think we should try to wrap things up. Uh, but Aaron, thank you so much for doing this. We appreciate yes, thank it. Thank you so much. It is, was an absolute pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you. Is there Are there things that you would like to point people to if they are fans of you and they would like more Aaron Hinkin in their life? You know what? I'm, I will do a quick plug. Mm-hmm. And that, I'm starting a brand new radio show and podcast here at Baltimore's public radio station, WYPR. And the show, I need listener input because the premise of the show is that each episode, I'm going to make my, I'm basically going to be your reporter on loan. And I'm going to, the assignment editor that I'm reporting to is you. And so I need listeners to tell me like, what is a question that you have about Baltimore or the region or its people or its history or its culture that you never have gotten a satisfactory answer to and that you would like to have a journalist spend a week of his life trying to figure out the answer to. The, the show is going to be called the Maryland Curiosity Bureau. And, I need, and so every week it's going to be me basically assigning myself to answer a listener's question. So if, if you got any good uh, questions that you want to you want to have a journalist spend a week of his life trying to solve, give me uh, just, uh, you can find me on the WYPR site or you can email me, uh, Aaron Henkin at uh, WYPR.org. I like that. That sounds really interesting. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'm, yeah. I'm excited to see how that plays out. It'll be a lot of randomness in my future. Yeah. And I'm going to go work on my email about the uh, oral history of Lake Trout. If you want to delve into that, <laughs> yes. I want you to spend a week on that yeah. for sure. How, how can All a state with no naturally occurring lakes serve Lake Trout in, yeah. many, a, in many a chicken box restaurant? <laughs> no one's asked that yet. Yep. All right. That well, could hey. be yours. All right. I'll consider it asked. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. But yeah, thank you so much. No, we really appreciate you taking the time because I know you are a busy man who does a lot of radio. So I appreciate you taking the time. Hey, I'm, you know, I'm glad to be turned on. I'm going to listen to the rest of the Nicolas Cage ones immediately on your episode, on your uh, timeline here. Nice. Yeah. And we still have one. I'm I'm a listener now. Nice. And we still have one more next week. So, so yeah, make sure to check back. You got two. Are you going to forward promote your next week's episode? 
We don't usually tease, but Andy, do you want to tell the people? We'll we'll tell them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to mess yeah. with your style. No, but go go but, ahead. We're gonna. This is an you exclusive. Know. You. This you is radio. As, this is radio one one, boys. Yeah. You yeah. got to forward promote. Well, this is you. Yeah, I mean, in your your the investigative reporter, you're asking the the probing questions. So yeah, I think we should reward you and our listeners. But yeah, for sure. What, how are we closing out the month? Andy? We are closing out the month with Grand Isle, <laughs> a much overlooked movie starring Nicolas Cage and Kelsey Grammer. And I'll just say, if you enjoyed the ridiculous accents on this episode, there are more in store next week. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> That's a good forward promote. Well done. Silver Linings Playback is a production of Hobotrashcan.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate or review it on Apple Podcasts. Hear more great shows on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network, like this one. How many times has this happened to you i just want to listen to a podcast i can't choose from all these complicated structures and setups you want to listen not think that's why there's hobo radio you'll feel like the smartest guy in the room in a room by yourself this doesn't take any intellectual thinking at all thanks hobo radio hobo radio a weekly podcast on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network.